0: I know. Okay. Good evening. Yeah. Uh, good evening. Good afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to see I'm ready in the evening. To say, yes, it looks so like the evening, out, well, looks like to evening to the, with the cloudiness out there. But okay. So first of all, today is Tu Bishvat, as we know today, and therefore enjoy some uh, fruit. The reason why on Tu Bishvat, just a little introduction about Tu Bishvat, it's the 15th of Shvat. The 15th of Shvat is the New Year of the trees. It is customary that we taste of the fruits from the land of Israel. The land of Israel is blessed with seven special fruits, wheat, barley, grapes, pomegranates, dates, figs, and olives. Uh, It is also customary that if one hasn't tasted a fruit in 30 days or since the beginning of the season, they make a special blessing called the Shehecheyanu on that fruit. It's interesting that it's the middle of the winter, so the amount of fruits that you can find are limited to the new fruits and especially their freshness of it. But in fact, what's the first fruit to begin to ripen is the almonds. Therefore, some people have almonds, some people have boxer, which is carrot. all different kinds of traditions that people have. But the main thing is that to taste fruits and to be like a tree, and to learn from the lessons of the tree, of having strong roots, sharing your fruit and your shade. And now let's go to today's class. And today's class is going to be talking about why is it that people ask rabbis things that are Seemingly not, nothing to do with Torah. What do I mean by that? You will find that many people, Jewish, non-Jewish, religious, non-religious, whenever it comes to a crux in their life, it comes to a certain situation that they're encountered with, not necessarily a religious situation, they go to the rabbi to ask the rabbi his opinion. And the question is why? Is the rabbi a doctor? Is the rabbi a lawyer? Is the rabbi a businessman? Is the rabbi any of those type of things? Why are they asking the rabbi these questions? There's a story told, just as a sort of an introduction, to was when the previous Rabbi first came to America, this wealthy businessman comes into the previous Rabbi and he asks the previous Rabbi a blessing for his business and advice concerning one of his business strategies. And the previous Rabbi gives him his advice and then afterwards the previous Rabbi asks him, Do you have set times for studying Torah? So he starts telling the previous Rebbe, why are you asking me about my religious observance, this, that, if I learn that? He says, I don't understand, the previous Rebbe tells me. You come to ask me questions and business advice that I'm not a businessman, but that you accept wholeheartedly. When you come, when I start telling you advice concerning your soul, which that is my business, all of a sudden you're telling me I don't know what I'm talking about. It's <laughs> so like, How funny. so sometimes people have their little mixed up. But what is it in the reality we find And this has not been, and we'll soon talk about how far back this goes, that people go to people of the cloth, if you want to call it, or of spiritual stature, to ask them advice in almost every subject in life. And the question is why. Not why, but what makes it that they should be able to ask those people. And let's go back, and this is actually, this phenomenon is not new, goes back almost Uh, 3,000 years, a little bit low, less than 3,000, 2,500 years ago. A story that's brought in the prophets. King Shaul was sent by his father, this was before he became King Shaul, was sent by his father to go look for the donkeys that disappeared. Three of his donkeys, of his best donkeys, disappeared, mules. And he was sent by his father to go see where they went. And as they're traveling through the Galilee, he goes with his assistant The three days, they're searching for the donkeys. This is brought in Samuel 1, and they can't find the donkeys. So his assistant says, you know that there's a prophet over here. Let's go ask the prophet. Maybe he can help us with the donkeys. Now, they weren't going to ask the prophet about how to serve God better, how to connect to God. A practical thing. They need to know where the donkeys are. So they went to ask the prophet where the donkeys are. Who is the prophet? Who's Shmuel the prophet. Shmuel Anavi, Samuel the prophet. And when he came to talk to Samuel about the donkeys, Samuel had more news for him than just about donkeys. He told him that, in fact, I have, you knew that you're going to be the king of the Jewish people, and he was considered great quality and great stature, and that's where Samuel the prophet actually anointed him as king. So we see over here again, an episode, where show, who by any stretch of the imagination was not the ordinary person, he was a person of great stature himself, and he realized that if it comes to it, a situation in my life, even about finding donkeys, he went to ask the prophet of his time. And the question yes. is, why? So if we look at ethics of our fathers, which is usually our guide to be able to navigate in the usual ethics and way we behave ourselves, ethics of our fathers tells us as follows. Make for yourself a rabbi. Acquire for yourself a friend. Not even ten Mishnah's later, it says again, Make for yourself a rabbi and avoid any doubt. Don't tithe by guesswork. Now, the one that compiled the Mishnah was one person. His name was Rabbi Yehudah Nasi. He took them from, from all the different opinions and he took them all and structured them in a proper way. Why would he write the same statement one after the other? Make for yourself a rabbi and then he says it again, 10 Mishnahs later, make for yourself a rabbi. And the, one of the commentators explained... And say that over here what Rabbi Yehudah Nasi was telling us. Is that there's two type of questions that a person asks a rabbi. There's a question in Jewish law. I don't know what to do. A dairy spoon fell into the meat soup. Or if I'm allowed to do this on Shabbat. I'm allowed to do this on the holiday. What about getting married? All the different things. So ask the rabbi the question. So you won't have any doubt. That's number one. But then there's another question that a person would ask a rabbi. A question that he puts together and he juxtaposes it together with make yourself a rabbi and acquire for yourself a friend. Because what are both of them doing? They are both guiding you that when you're in doubt, if you have a question of advice, ask somebody. Speak to somebody. Ask somebody some advice. See what they say. And who does he say to ask advice? Ask a rabbi for some advice. So a person may say, how can I ask Okay, if there's Shmuel the prophet, I'll ask him. Or if they are talking about a great scholar like Rabbi Judah Nasi, I'll ask him. But who am I to ask today? Who am I going to go to? Where is there a prophet? Why should I just go to every Joe Shmuel and ask him advice? No, you go to an Orthodox, Rabbi. So, the Talmud tells us. The Talmud tells us very clearly. Shmuel and his generation... Samuel the prophet in this generation was like Moses in his generation. That means in every single generation there are scholars and there are leaders and there are rabbis who in their generation, they're just like Moses. They're just like Samuel. And you can ask them the same question. Where do we know this from? Because it says in the book of Deuteronomy, that God, Moshe tells the Jewish people should you have a question will then go to the holy temple and you will ask the judge who is nearby Yomimahim in those days that means in those days what does Moses say I know I'm not going to live forever and in every situation in every generation there's going to be rabbis and ask them. and those rabbis of those generations are going to be just as great as the rabbis of the earlier generation a person can say you know I can't ask anybody they're not too great they're a bunch of who knows what no, every single rabbi in that generation is as if and as great as the rabbi's of the previous generation for that generation. And the greater generation, you need a greater rabbi. The generation's not that great. they don't need such a great rabbi. Right? In fact, one of the interesting things, I remember this, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade. This was when um, the rabbi's wife passed away. When the rabbi's wife passed away, one of the things that the rabbi spoke about, the rabbi spoke a lot about um, passing... When somebody goes on to the other world, what's its impact and all that in nature? And one of the things that the Rebbe encouraged and made everybody at the time wanted, and still continues and wants, that every single person should have a mashpia, a mentor, a rabbi, who they ask their questions to. And the Rebbe said that, "Don't send every little question to me. You have a mentor. Ask your friend. Ask your rabbi, and see what he says." If you still have a question, you're still not sure or if your rabbi suggested you should come, then you'll come and ask. And to the extent that many times people, people will ask the rabbi questions, whether it was medical questions or whether it was business questions, and the response was, in Hebrew we used to write, like the advice of friends who are knowledgeable in the situation. Or when it came to a medical situation, you would ask, to go to a doctor who is a friend, specifically having both a person who understands the medical knowledge but at the same time has your interest in mind, and therefore you should ask that person. And many times, only after asking the advice of that doctor or that friend, would the Rebbe respond with his, so to speak, okay or not okay, what should be done. And the Rebbe many times would ask, before a person asked him the question, did you already ask your mentor? Did you already speak to the doctor? Did you already speak to somebody else about this? And the purpose of that is because we have to remember that in everything we do in life, we should not be the singularity judge. We should be able to ask and bounce things off other people, and um, and that's the concept of it. But the question still remains. Where does the rabbi know? Where does the rabbi have the power to be able to determine what should be done in the business or the medical or whatever it may be, that the very fact is that we see that people continue to go to ask people, rabbis, for these types of advice, which seemingly are not their field whatsoever. So by looking into this week's Torah reading, we can glean a little bit of understanding why. And in this week's Torah reading, we come to the, so to speak, the pinnacle of the purpose of why the Jewish people came out of Egypt. When Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go... Why let my people go so that they should be able to serve God on Mount Sinai, that they should be able to get to Torah? And in this week's Torah reading, finally, we read about the epic moment where God comes out to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and the booming voice, I am God, was taking taken out of Egypt, and the Jewish people, they give the Ten Commandments, and they give them to Torah. But there's a little bit of a story that happened beforehand that we don't know so much about, and that's what we're going to talk about. Before God gave the Jewish people the Torah, there were people, well, I shouldn't say people, there was a little bit of an issue. A ruckus came out, which was that God wanted a gift to give the Torah to the humans on this world, and all of a sudden the angels said, ah, bah, 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 not so fast. Why are you giving the angels, the, why are you giving the humans the Torah? Who can, why is the Torah going to human people on the, the flesh and blood? Moses didn't know what to respond. God tells Moses, answer them. Tell them something. And what does Moses say? What does it say in the Torah? "Honor am any father or mother. Any of you angels have a father or mother? I am God that took you out of Egypt. Any of you have been down to Egypt? Why should the Torah be by you? And finally, <laughs> therefore, they had to agree, and the Torah was given on this world. The question is, where were the angels until now? Before God gave the Torah, he offered the Torah to all the nations of the world and they declined it. And he gave it to the Jews and he offered it to the Jews and the Jews said, we will do and we will listen. You don't find anywhere that the angels protest, oh, don't give it to the non-Jews. Even more so. We know that even before the Torah was given, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob studied the Torah. Abraham, for example, the story of Abraham when he has the... Um, angels come to him and he first serves them the dairy and only afterwards serves them the meat so they shouldn't have milk and meat together so we you know he kept the Torah mm-hmm. he was making c- cookies he calls them cookies but then it was uh, crackers if you want to call it because it was Pesach Jacob sent Judah down to Egypt that they should be studying Torah so though they didn't keep it to the way we keep it in the letter of the law but the knowledge of the Torah the studying of the Torah they did before it how come the angels didn't protest that? Where were the angels there? How come they didn't stop them? In fact, the Talmud tells us that throughout the forefathers' times, they were always studying Torah, and nowhere do we find that the angels should be uh, stopping them from studying Torah. Even more so, later on, in two weeks' time, we're going to be talking about and studying about the construction of the tabernacle. That God built the tab- the Jewish people built the tabernacle in the, holy- in the desert, and over there was the Holy of Holies, the menorah, and the altar. And that tabernacle eventually came to the land of Israel, and eventually King Solomon built a holy temple. And the Medrash gives an example. Why did the Jewish people have to bring a tabernacle, a build a tabernacle? And the Medrash says, it gives an example. Imagine you have a king who has an only daughter. And this a uh, king from a neighboring country comes and marries his only daughter, the princess. Now the king tells this other king, to tell you to live here, I can't tell you. To tell you not to take my daughter also bothers me. So therefore, the king says, tells this other king, wherever you travel with my daughter, make a special room for me, so I should be able to come and visit. Same thing is also God gave us the Torah. The Torah really should have been on high, but God says to keep the Torah on high, I can't. To send it down here on the world on its own, I also don't want... So therefore, wherever the Jewish people are, make for me a place that I should be able to feel comfortable. And therefore, we look in the words, it says, the Asulim Mikdash make for myself a sanctuary, so I should be able to dwell there. So the tabernacle, the holy temple, a synagogue today, is that, so to speak, that room that we allow God to say, this is your spot. shows that we're thinking about you. If the Torah is something of such a great ideal. If the Torah is something which we talk about a concept of spiritual entities, of ideas, why does God have to worry about it going away to the Jewish people? It's a spiritual book. It's up above the way it's here in this world. What's his concern? Why does God say, make this little room for the Torah so it shouldn't be, so it shouldn't leave, it shouldn't forget me? Why? It's a spiritual book. It's a concept. It's re- its ideas. Ideas can be in the physical world and in the spiritual world the same. All of a sudden God's worried how does the spiritual world get contaminated and changed? Nothing changes within the Torah because the Torah is being given. Just like this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore we must say that something changed by the very fact that when the Torah was given. Something not only changed within us, the human beings, but something changed in the quality of the Torah, in the way the Torah was transmitted, and its concepts that the Torah has. And what we're going to discuss today is this Hasidic concept of telling us of what the Torah's impact on the world, and with understanding the Torah's impact on the world, we will then understand the argument that the angels had, and what this Negrush is telling us. But first the story story about the current president, not current anymore, the previous president of Israel. His name was Ruby Rivlin. This fellow, Ruby Rivlin, was from a very great distinguished family of the Jerusalem Jews that were there for already the past almost 200 years. His great-great-grandfather, about 250 years ago, was a fellow by the name of Shlomo Zalman Rivlin. This rabbi Shlomo Zalman Rivlin was a student of the Zulmegon the known of the Vilna This Vilna had a grandson, Reb Hillel Ishkov, Hillel, and he came to Israel eventually, and he was the one that settled the students, that was about 200 years ago, settled in Jerusalem, the 200, uh, settled the students of the Vilna and he came to Jerusalem all the way back then. This Reb Shlomo Zalman Rivlin, who was a student of the of the Vilna had also an older son, and that older son became a chassid that means the Vilna goyim with the Lithuanian community, were the opponents of Hasidism, his son became a Hasid. Now his grandson was one of the very well-known Hasidic Jews who was connected and a follower of the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe. And he was the one, this fellow, Rabbi Yisrael Yosef Rivlin, Rivlin, was the one that moved to the land of Israel 200 years ago as well. In fact, the president of Israel used to say that he was the one that brought peace amongst the opponents of Hasidim and Hasidim because he's a, a descendant for both of them. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, so there's a story that's told about this fellow Yosef Yisrael, and how he ended up leaving Russia and ended up being in Israel 200 years ago. What happened was he was diagnosed with a terrible disease in his liver. And they told him he only has three months left to live. He came to his, uh, being a Hasid, he doesn't accept the doctor's prognosis. And he goes to his Israel. And he goes to the Tzema And he goes to the Tzema And the Tzema tzaddik tells him, Leave Russia. Move to Israel. And you'll be okay. He moves to Israel. And days pass. Months pass. He's doing fine. <laughs> and he lived another 20 years in Israel. A long life. But in that time, in between, he went back to the Tzema tzaddik to visit. And he went back to the Tzermach Tzaddik to visit, and he asked the Tzermach Tzaddik at a certain point, why did you send me to Israel? Why? I tell you, I come with a liver problem. Don't go to Israel, you feel better. Is it the ear of Israel would be better to heal me? In fact, it's interesting to note that if you go today in the old city in Jerusalem, there's a shul called Pesach Nessus Tzaddik, the Tzermach Tzaddik Synagogue. It's mm-hmm. still there today from the original one that they bought. And he was the fellow that bought it. That he was the Disrebelio Yisrael so he came back to the tzemach and he asked the tzemach "What was in Israel the third chabad rebbe that he said?" And the tzemach explained to him as follows: He says, "Your disease that you had, your sickness, is also a sickness that's found by animals, a liver illness, and encoded Jewish law, and encoded Jewish law there's a debate concerning this type of illness. If an animal that has this illness is considered a trefah. The word treif that we know today, which is the opposite of kosher, comes from an animal, meaning an animal that cannot live for 12 months, even if it's slaughtered kosherly, it is still not considered kosher because it's called a treif and because it's going to eventually die. Eventually means die within 12 months. And therefore today, when they slaughter an animal, they will check the lungs of the animal to see if there's any lesions on it. Lesions telling you that this animal was sick, Tuberculosis, whatever it may be, and therefore this animal wouldn't have survived. And therefore, even if the animal was slaughtered kosher, if there's lesions on the lung, that's why the word is glot kosher. If the lung is smooth, the word glot means smooth. That they check it, that there's no lesions, it makes it kosher. The tzemach tells them that this illness that you have, there's a debate in code of Jewish law, if it's considered a treifa or not. If it's considered an animal that can survive or can't survive. Ramosh is a relish? I huh? Yeah, I'll get it just one second. Hold on. I don't know if i no? I didn't see you. I will to on the phone. Who is that? I'm the rabbi, but I'll give you a call. Okay. I spoke to you. Once before. Once before, yeah. yeah. I'm just coming after in the incidents and after the... Rabbi, i don't know you can call me in the office i'm going to be on the road going to of other places. i'm just checking thank you the okay sorry for the interruption there. okay so what does he is he says your illness that you have is a debate between Ramo, which is Ramosa Shurelish, which lived in Krakow or in different places, and he believes that it's considered a traitor, that it's considered a non-kosher animal because it's destined to die. However, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, who lived in Sfat, and that was his enterprise, was more lenient and said, no, that this animal actually is kosher because it's not considered a trifle. And the Tzabach tzaddik tells him as follows. Because in Russia, you're living in the domain of Rabbi Moshe Sarevich, the Ramon. And he says it's non-kosher, and therefore, you wouldn't survive. But if you go to Israel, which over there, you're in the domain of the base Yosef, the Rabbi Yosef Cairo. Mm -hmm. Then over there, you are under his domain. And he says it is kosher, so therefore you live. So therefore, you'll be able to survive. (laughs) What was he telling you? What were the words of the Tzamech Tzadek telling him, it's not just a story, It's a true story. But what was he really saying here? And over here he was explaining to him how we see practically what happened when the Torah was given. When the Torah was given, the Torah now went from an idea to a reality. Before the Torah was given on Mount Sinai, it was an idea. And it was an idea that everybody can share regardless of. You were before the giving of the Torah, you were Jewish, you were not Jewish. It didn't make a difference, above, below, whatever it may be. The Torah stayed in its supernal being. But it was an idea that every person was able to share. All of a sudden, when the Torah was given, God comes down on Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. The Torah now moved locations. The Torah is no longer up in heaven. The Torah is here in this world. The Torah now is given the authority by us, the Jewish people, to decide what should be the law. That means when a person comes to a rabbi and asks him, what do I do about this scenario? The rabbi determines and makes the situation, creates the situation. It's not just applying knowledge but it's also creating the scenario. To give you another example brought in the Talmud. The Talmud tells us as follows. The Talmud tells us about a very famous debate between Rabbi Elezer ben Hurkinis and Rabbi Yeshua ben Canaimah. Rabbi Elezer ben Hurkinis was known as Rabbi Elezer Agadol, the greatest scholar of all times. To the extent that Rabbi Yechenim says that if I have all my students on one side and Rabbi Elezer ben Hurkinis on the other, he would tip the scale. And Rabbi Allah, had a debate concerning an oven. An oven which was made by a fellow called the Achnoi oven. Now, there, you know, like today, there's GE and Maytag and Samsung. So those days, they had a guy called Achnoi. And he made a certain oven which was made out of ceramic, out of, out of a cistern that was made out of earthenware. And the question was, what is this oven? Is this oven something which can become tummy can become impure? The mm-hmm. difference is, if it's something which is connected to the ground, it can't become impure, but if it's considered a vessel, then it could become impure. And there was a big debate if it could become impure or not. Rabbi Eliezer holds that this oven is clean and therefore cannot become impure. Rabbi Yeshua ben believed that it could become impure. And they took a vote, because that's what always, whenever there's a debate, to take a vote. And the vote was in Rabbi Yeshua's favor that the oven is impure. However, Rabbi Yishua ben protested. He said, I don't care about the vote. I am Rabbi Eleazar the Great, and therefore I say that it's clean. I say it can't become pure. And in refusing to accept the opinion, he said, I'll prove it to you. Mm -hmm. And miraculously, the tree all of a sudden fell out of its roots and fell down. Then he said, if I am the one that's right, let the wall of the synagogue bend. And the wall of the synagogue bend. Then all other different types of miracles were happening to be able to say and show that Rabbi Eleazar is correct. But it didn't help They said, sorry, it doesn't make a difference. We're what you say. And they didn't listen to Rabbi Eliezer until finally he said, you know what, let a voice of heaven come out. And a voice of heaven came out and said, why are you bothering Rabbi Eliezer if the halacha is like him in every place, that the halacha should be like him. So all of a sudden, Rabbi Yeshua gets up and says, Mrs. Vasco, voice of heaven, I protest. The Torah is not in the heaven. You don't have the right to decide. The Torah is here in this world. And therefore, we are the ones that decide what the Torah is. And therefore, even if a voice of heaven comes out and says, Allah is like Rabbi together, we can disagree because the Torah is determined here in this world. Later on, one of the great sages Netra Eliyahu Nafi, Elijah the prophet, and asks Elijah the prophet, what was God doing by this debate? Whose side was he on? <laughs> <laughs> and Elijah the prophet said, God was watching it all unfold, and he said, I can, God, God said, nitzchuni b'ni, nitzchuni b'ni. My children were victorious. What was God saying? God says that who determines what halacha is? I set for you the perimeters. But when it comes to the practical application, when we follow the ethos and the values of the Torah, we create the situation. We make the situation. The Talmud tells us another interesting story that brings out this point even more. There was two great, uh, two, two great scholars after the destruction of the Temple, I'm sure you know, that the way they used to be able to determine a new month was when they saw the new moon. And in the which was then considered the place where the Sanhedrin was, there was the leader of the Sanhedrin at the time, was Rabbi Gamliel, and witnesses would come to Yavne, and they would say, we saw the new moon. It was of Rosh Hashanah, which means right before Rosh Hashanah of the new year, two witnesses came and they said, we saw the new moon. Rabbi Gamliel accepted their testimony and said, today is Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Yeshua, who was standing there, Rabbi Yeshua said, excuse me Rabbi Gamliel, these are not honest people. Rabbi Gamaliel said, I don't care, this is the halacha, I am in charge. (laughs) You are not the one to decide. I'm the head of the Bezdin, I accepted their testimony, I believe them. But what's the problem now? It can be a little argument. The question is, when do you observe Yom Kippur? Do I observe it on the 10th day according to Rabbi Gamaliel, which would be the 9th day according to Rabbi Yeshua? And the 10th day according to Rabbi Yeshua would be the 11th day according to Rabbi Gamaliel. Ram Gamaliel wanted to make a point. Ram Gamaliel told Rabbi Yeshua, I decree upon you that you need to come to me on the day that it is Yom Kippur for you. That means on the 11th day. For us, it's not Yom Kippur. For you, it is Yom Kippur. You are going to come to me with your stake, with your walking belt, with your money belt. You're going to come to me to show that you're not observing Yom Kippur on the day that the rabbi said is Yom Kippur, is not Yom Kippur. I mean, Yeshua wasn't stuck. He was in a quagmire. What do I do? My calculation is seemingly correct. But the head of the Besdom says, I should come to him. I can't defy his rules. So he went to his teacher and his mentor, Rabbi Akiva. And he asked Rabbi Akiva, what do I do? And Rabbi Akiva quoted him a verse in the book of uh, Leviticus and then again in the book of now, Deuteronomy. Moya de Hashem, these are the festivals of God. Asher tikru oisam that you will announce them in the time that the sages make it a holiday. And it says, Atem oisam, they will say it, Atem that you will announce it, even if they're mistaken. That means, even if the head court was mistaken, but they announced when the holiday is, God says that's the holiday. Now think about this. How does this work out? Mm. Yom Kippur is not just a day on the calendar. It's like I remember once I was talking to a fellow, he was telling me, Pesach, I asked him, when are you going to be for the Seder? She says, ah, my mother's not going to be home this week, so therefore we're going to do the Seder in two weeks. Pesach and uh, wow, Yom Kippur, that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, Pesach, <laughs> what do you mean? Exactly what I'm telling you. So what happens is, and exactly the point, because it's not just a day on the calendar, okay? You ever hear somebody say, you know, Thanksgiving, I'll do it in two months from now because it's too cold. No, it's a day in the calendar (laughs) because that's the way they do it. How much more so when it comes to a Jewish holiday? Yom Kippur is not just one day that we decide in the middle of the year we should show up to synagogue. It is a holy day on the calendar and therefore it's a holy day that it is above. So how does that work out? That if we make a mistake or something of that nature then it should still be that day. Yeah. How does it work out? And over here, this is what the Talmud tells us. Because the Talmud quotes a verse and it says, gezer, the righteous decrees, mekayim, and God follows through. What was the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people? You remember? It was the mitzvah of the new month. That's right. And all of a sudden, the mitzvah of the new month, God comes along to the Jewish people and says, you see this new moon? When you see the new moon, that's when it's the first of the month. Not when I determine. Shabbat, I determine. The seventh day, you got no choice. But when it comes to the month, it comes to the holidays. When a Jew sees the new month, that's when it becomes the new month. Take, for example, the story of Moshe and Korach. In the book of Numbers, it tells us. Korach, which is Moshe's cousin, leads a coup, a rebellion against Moshe. What does Moshe tell them? He says, hey, you don't trust me? You don't think that I decide that these laws come from God? Go take your 250 people, bring incense into the holy temple, and see how well it works for you. Which we know, of course, it didn't, and they were consumed. (laughs) Why does Moshe say that? Why doesn't Moshe say, you know what, let's ask God, let's hear what God has to say. Because what Moshe was telling Korach, what was telling every Jew for the future generations is, That when God gave the rabbis the ability to give authority in the Torah, He gave them a blanket check. And He said, here are the perimeters, here's the check, you now decide. It's not that you have to keep on asking back and forth again. And therefore you may ask, how is that possible? So God comes along and says the first mitzvah, You're going to see the moon, you're the ones that are going to determine, and I will come and agree with you. I will come and affirm it. I will come and be there with you as we make that decision. And therefore, what was the angels' complaint when they see Moshe taking the Torah? It wasn't their complaint that all of a sudden the ideas are going to be studied in this world as well. What their complaint was, they have no problem that the Jews studying the Torah. But they weren't ready that the Jews should have the keys to the Torah. To determine to take the Torah and determine and make the world based on the Torah. To change the concepts and ideas, to create these ideas. That Jews should become all of a sudden partners with God, with the Torah. That bothered them. The same thing is also when God gave us the ability. When God, what they were afraid was that the Jews are going to separate themselves from the Torah. On the contrary... What God says is the Jews are taking the Torah and he gave it to the Jewish people. He sees the victory within the Jewish people. He sees that the Jewish people, it's not just that they're studying Torah, but there's ownership to the Torah. They believe in the Torah, it's theirs. They're making it their role model of life. Not only in the ethos and the values of the Torah, but in everything they do in life is based on the concepts and the ideas of the Torah. Every single part of it. And therefore the Torah is not just in what avenue. So when you come to ask the rabbi the question, it's not only an alacha question, it's also the world view, it's an idea. Because everything is in the Torah. And the rabbi is able to utilize the Torah to create that environment in the universe. A person may ask, Okay, that was to Moses. Now was Samuel the prophet. Now mm-hmm. was for the great Ramad, the Besyikz. If you want to name the great scholars of the yesteryear, but mm-hmm. well, what about today? Today, are we up to par to say that the rabbis have that ability to be able to look inside the Torah and glean and create these concepts of the universe? And therefore, what we find over here, as we see, and this is what we read in the Tanya, tells us that through a person studying Torah. The study of the Torah automatically transforms the human being. When a person studies Torah properly, it's not just them and the Torah become separate entities. It's not like a person who studies Torah like a scientist, you know, they used to say about Aristotle, that he would talk about laws of ethics and values, and then they would walk outside and see him not doing everything he just said. So they asked him, how is this possible? He just gave a lecture on how to be an ethical person. he says, "Now I'm not Aristotle. The Torah is just the opposite. The Torah permeates the individual, changes the person. Because when a person studies Torah, like in the first words of the Ten Commandments, as we mentioned in today's Torah reading, (laughs) the word Anochi stands for an acronym, of the words, (laughs) because when you study Torah, you're not just studying an intellectual idea, a magnificent, brilliant, uh, scholarly work, but you're actually taking God with you. And when you have God in every single part of your bones, what you do, it changes the person, it changes the environment, it changes the way a person sees something, and automatically changes the attitude, the way a person can see things. The Torah creates the environment, creates the human being. And therefore, when we go back to our original question, why then should one ask the rabbi, does the rabbi know about business? Does he know about medical things? Well, what the rabbi is doing is giving you the spiritual focus of what this is. That means if I were to, I want to ask God what I should do. How am I going to do about it? How do I know what God prefers? The rabbi is that conduit of giving us what God's notion and ideas and ability to be able to explain it. Not only that, the rabbi is not saying the facts the way it is. The rabbi is creating the facts. Is creating the scenario. Because when a person studies Torah, when a person does things in a spiritual method, in a way which is guided by the teachings of the Torah, then even if until now it wasn't meant to be that way, automatically we can create that. And this is what we find later on. How is this possible then that we find that there are rabbis that are corrupt, and that there are Mm -hmm. rabbis that give bad advice, or whatever it may be, or they take money and all that stuff. Because at the end of the day, the greater the human being, the greater is evil inclination. The more people that you have think that are following you, the more egotistic and narcissistic a person can become. And part of the rabbi's job is to be able to stay humble and to realize that the information that he's sharing, that he is merely a conduit, not an entity for itself. Mm -hmm. And how do we know then which rabbi to choose to know who it is? And therefore he tells us in the Mishnah going back, Make for yourself a rabbi. This rabbi may be good for you, but not good for somebody else. This rabbi may be good for the other person, and not good for you. Every single individual has to see which rabbi fits to his needs, to their needs, to be able to satisfy, to be able to bring the spirituality out of that individual. Every single one of us has the ability to grow and to prosper within our spiritual sphere and to make the world around us a holier place that even the mere decisions that we make in mundane items can be holy as well, as long as we're guided by the right guide, as long as we have the right advice, as long as we're making the right decisions. And no two people are alike. You can't say, well, that person got that advice to do this, so therefore I should do this. No, because your way of bringing Godliness into the world is directed only for you. And therefore the Torah tells us, make that Rabbi your personal Rabbi. Your personal, that means you have to feel comfortable that this is the way you're projecting holiness in the world. And if you're not projecting holiness and spirituality into the world because of it, then you know this that maybe you have to find a different path. And this is what we find. The ideas as well, going back to this week's Torah reading, where the angels, what was their, what was their fear? That now it was taking away from their holiness. It's no longer an intellectual idea. The ownership of the Torah is not given to the Jewish people. We are the owners of the Torah. We are meaning that we have the ability to project the Torah in every single aspect in our life, even into the most mundane. And that is our goal. And then our entire being, our entire life, is a Torah life. Hmm. That's it.